listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Gate Strong is She's All That, followed by Rock's Glass. Close behind, security. Come on, Six. Come on, get up there, Six. Let's go, Six. Come on, baby. Damn, Tony. i never seen you this passionate about horse racing. Uh, not now, Chris. I got a couple big ones floating on the number six here. Oh, 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 wait. Last call? The one in last place? Uh, yeah, yeah. Get up there, baby. Got Lost again. Dude, you need to stick to bartending. That's a safe bet for you. I haven't given up yet. Because one day, I'm going to hit that one with the long shot. You just wait and see. Well, before you strike it rich with these 95 to 1 odds, let me get a drink before that next race. Oh, yeah, yeah. You got it, man. You know what? I'm going to pour you the official drink of the Kentucky Derby, the mint julep. So right out of the gate, you're going to grab a rocks glass and lightly muddle some fresh mint leaves. Quarter ounce of simple syrup. Then you add two ounces of your favorite Kentucky bourbon. Pack that full of ice. Now you're going to stir it till the glass is a little frosted. Then you're going to top that off with some more ice. Garnish it with a mint sprig. Here you go, man. That's what I'm talking about. Well, listen, man. I'll let you get to that next race. I got to go catch up with a true legend in AI. All right, man. Well, I'm going to hit the next post time, man. I'll see you next round. Hey, Chris, can I borrow $2? Louis Rosenberg is a pioneer in the fields of augmented reality, virtual reality, and artificial intelligence. He developed the first functional augmented reality system for the Air Force Research Laboratory in 1992. He then founded the early virtual reality company Immersion Corp in 1993 and the early augmented reality company Outland Research in 2004. He's currently CEO and chief scientist of Unanimous AI, a company that amplifies group intelligence in shared environments. Rosenberg earned his PhD from Stanford University and has worked as a professor at Cal State University and has been awarded over 300 patents for AR, VR, and AI technologies. Lewis, thanks for stopping by Barcode. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. So first off, most listeners, including myself, would interpret VR and AR technology as you would commonly see in the world today, right? So you're talking about your Oculus Rift, your PlayStation VR, and uh, I'm interested to hear how you personally got into that field so early in your career. As I mentioned, it was it was in the early 90s, I believe, before it was really commercialized or or went mainstream. Yeah. So um, 
you know, the field of, of VR really started in research labs in the late 80s. And there was a very small amount of commercial activity in the late 80s. Uh, I was a, a graduate student at Stanford uh, at that time. I was exposed to the technology. I was interested in the technology. And I decided, hey, I'm going to uh, pursue my, my doctoral work, my PhD work in, in this field. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get, uh, to, to get an opportunity to, to be a research associate at, at NASA in uh, their VR lab. Interesting. One of the few places that had VR really happening in the late 80s and early 90s. And so uh, my, my earliest research in VR was on vision systems and uh, looking at how you model interocular distance or the distance between your eyes in software to see if that if you can optimize depth perception. So so these are the types of things we were looking at way back then was, you know, these very basic parameters. And so uh, that was interesting research for me. Uh, but I actually found that experience of, of wearing VR uh, headsets to be isolating and enclosing. And um, and I felt like, you know, this this capability of, of creating, you know, immersive virtual worlds is amazing. But I, I just don't like wearing the headsets. And, and this is before the idea of, of augmented reality, before that word even existed. Uh, but so I would describe to people, I say, you know, what I really want to do is take this idea of VR and just splash it all over the real world so it can be, you know, out there in the environment. And, uh, and so I pitched that concept to the, to the U.S. Air Force and, uh, and they gave me a fellowship, uh, to go to Wright Patterson Air Force Base in, uh, in Dayton, Ohio and build a system, which was called the, the virtual fixtures platform. And it was, uh, really the first functional interactive augmented reality system that allowed people to, to interact with the real world and the virtual world at the same time. And, uh, and that was also, you know, a, a great experience for me. And, and the point of that research was to show that we could en- enhance people's performance, manual dexterity by putting, uh, virtual fixtures, virtual objects into the real world. And so we showed that augmented reality could do this. But again, the, the, the thing that had the biggest impact on me was also surprising, which was, it wasn't the fact that this worked. It was what the, I, I did a lot of testing on human subjects and every single one of them would climb out of the system and they would just tell me how amazing the experience was and, and how excited they were and, and how this was going to change the world. And I believed it. <laughs> um, and so in 1993, I founded uh, Immersion Corporation, which is one of the early virtual reality companies with the idea that, you know, in 10 years, this is going to be everywhere. This, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality, what we call now call the metaverse will be everywhere. Uh, and I, I guess I was off by 20 years because uh, it, it's taken uh, really taken 30 years, not 10 for that to happen. But I think I do think we're now there. We're now at the point where virtual reality and augmented reality uh, now branded as the metaverse will um, will impact the lives of most people uh, in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I'm curious, what were some of the use cases back then as you're trying to really prove this out as being a legit concept, right? And, and, and yeah. how you envisioned it then, what were some of the use cases that really, um, you know, was the, was the breakthrough for you? Yeah. So, um, when I was pitching the, the concept of, of augmented reality to the Air Force, uh, I, you know, I gave them lots of different examples of what you could do with it. But the thing that, that, got them the most excited was applications in actually in medicine 
uh, and the example I gave them was surgery. So imagine if uh, imagine if your doctor performing surgery and uh, and you had the ability to 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 have virtual overlays that you could add to your world, uh, overlays that would provide you with information about the patient, um, even potentially let you see into the patient, basically uh, project their um, uh, imagery that you would take from CAT scans, MRIs, and, and actually see, you know, basically see through their skin by, oh, by combining the real world and the virtual world. And, and then I proposed this idea of virtual fixtures, which was to say, well, imagine if these things didn't just look real, but they felt real that you could physically feel these things, then you could create a fixture that you could actually guide your hand the way a ruler would guide a pencil. You could have a fixture that you could overlay on the patient and guide your hand and make a, you know, make a perfectly precise incision or protect uh, a scalpel from going too deep into the, into the body to protect uh, vital organs. And because these are virtual, they don't have to be sterilized. They can just be, you know, in uh, appear at the touch of a button. Uh, they could actually go penetrate below the surface of the skin. So they can go through the body, even, uh, whereas real fixtures couldn't. And so that was really the, the concept that got people excited. And, and what we tested uh, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and, and to allow people to feel things, not just see and, and hear, but feel uh, the human subjects that, that I had in these experiments. They wore this big upper body exoskeleton, kind of like what you see in uh, – in the aliens movie, uh, they, they were this exoskeleton that would track their hand motion and apply forces back so that if you, if your hand interacted with a, a virtual object, it'd stop you, you'd feel it. And, um, and it worked. And, and so what's interesting is that, you know, that was the vision 30 years ago. This weekend, I was just at a medical conference in San Francisco where uh, this technology has, has advanced so much over the last 30 years that uh, there were, uh, research studies being shown. There, there was a group that, um, a group, I think at Johns Hopkins that was sh showing how using augmented reality, they are performing surgeries right now to do what's called pedicle screw placement. These are screws that they put into people's spine. And, um, and, and, and when they're wearing these augmented reality glasses, these, they get targets that appear on the patient in the exact location where the screw has to go to help guide guide them performing these procedures. And, uh, and this is, you know, cutting edge research, but, you know, my view is within five to 10 years, every surgeon is going to have the, the power of augmented reality uh, when they're performing procedures, either to help give them navigational information while they're performing the procedure or to give them x-ray vision to allow them to just see through the patient by projecting, you know, 3D CAT scan images right below the skin. So you could actually see. So, uh, so medicine, I think is at the cutting edge of this right now, but those very same things could be used for every industry. You know, whatever your field is, uh, I think augmented reality will give people superpowers. It will allow them mm -hmm. to, uh, to visualize things and see things in ways that they, that they couldn't, uh, you know, they, they currently just put on a flat screen. I was going to ask you the question in terms of, you said five to 10 years, you actually see this becoming a reality. Um, what does it take to get to that point? I understand it's going to be more than a pitch. There's going to be uh, trials, right? You know, and I know with healthcare, because I worked in security and healthcare in the past, that everything with healthcare takes longer because there's a patient on the table at the end of the day. And we need to make sure that, you know, everyone's, 
uh, safety is is looked out for. So what what are some of the steps that you need to do from taking that conception to actually implementing it in the real world? Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's research labs all over the world right now, you, you know, exploring augmented reality for use in medicine, uh, for use in all, all kinds of, uh, of procedures, you know, in, including sophisticated surgeries. Um, they're seeing good results. The technology is advancing really the, the, you know, for doing augmented reality, the, the hardest thing is to make sure that the, the virtual world and the real world are very well aligned. You know, physically aligned, spatially aligned. We we call that spatial registration. Okay. Because, you know, it's if you want to be able to look into a, per, a patient's body, that's most powerful if if what you see is exactly aligned with the with the right place in the body, right? And so, um, they are there are there are technologies for doing that. Uh, even in surgery, with you know, giving very very accurate registration. And it keeps getting better and better. Uh, it's a little bit time consuming because right now, you know, sometimes they, they do these, this registration with what they call markers. And so these markers are, um, they could actually have to be surgically attached to the patient so that the system can register to these, you know, these reference points. You can cut, you can calibrate it to the, the actual patient, right? Calibrate it to the actual patient. And, um, and that works and it works very, very accurately, but there's new technologies coming out now, which actually just use cameras and AI to, uh, to look at, you know, to look at the patient in real time and, uh, accurately calibrate the, you know, the, the 3D CAT scan with the patient. And, uh, they're not quite as accurate yet as when, uh, when they use these physical markers, but I think within five years they will be. And when that happens, now the whole, the whole process becomes simple. It's, you know, camera looks at the patient, everything's aligned. And, and now you can have these really accurate augmented reality experiences. So, I mean, but the short answer to your question is, you know, there, there are a lot of procedures that don't require that level of accuracy and registration, even, even just for planning a procedure. You know, if you can have a patient before you and, and look below the surface and see, uh, see what's going on without having to look back and forth at a screen, yeah. which is, you know, the way they do it now, then, um, it's going to save you mental effort. You don't have to do these mental transformations in your head of like, what am I seeing? Where is it in the body? And, uh, and even if it's, you know, it's not super precise, you know, down to the, you know, 10th of a millimeter, it, it's still really valuable mm -hmm. for the, for the doctor. So, so there's really no barriers right now for this impacting medicine uh, in terms of technical barriers. The barriers are in some sense, cultural barriers in terms of like, it has to get accepted by the medical community. Uh, it has to get accepted by doctors. They have to feel comfortable uh, wearing the headsets. When they are asked to do these things in experimental trials, the feedback is always really positive. They, they, you know, they might be skeptical at first, but then they realize, oh, this is easy and it's, it's intuitive and I don't need to, you to teach me anything. And, and in a lot of cases, I mean, that's the thing about augmented reality is it puts the information where you want it to be. Yeah. And so it's not, it doesn't require an explanation. It's just as soon as you try it, you realize like, oh, that's the way it was supposed to happen. And, and so you get this very positive feedback. And so my view is that once augmented reality is really introduced to the general public on a consumer scale, mm -hmm. then those cultural issues for doctors and really every other profession will disappear and they'll realize, oh, I want to use this in my professional life. And, and, um, and augmented reality glasses are really very close. I mean, 
all the big companies are working on consumer grade augmented reality glasses. Apple, Google. Not Google Glass. Uh, well, so <laughs> Google Glass was really what you would call smart glasses, where it was giving you your textual information. It, they, I mean, I credit Google for being ahead of their time. I mean, it was a failure of a product. It was a failure of a product, but you know what? They take risks. They were ahead of their time. Um, it, it, you know, people called it augmented reality, but it was really just smart glasses. It wasn't putting 3D information in your world in, in the spatially registered place. Um, but it set the tone then. It did set it did set the tone. It, it soured some people towards that. Uh, we're now at a point where companies, including Google, are developing real augmented reality glasses. So uh, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Sony, Samsung, uh, Snap, all working on uh, and Meta, all working on augmented reality glasses. They're a little harder than virtual reality glasses because they're they're lighter weight. They're smaller. They have to look stylish right. uh, because you're going to wear them out in public. But there's, you know, if you look at the industry, it's, it's very likely between you know, 2024, 2025, maybe 2026. That's the period when these companies will launch augmented reality glasses. So if let's say Apple launches augmented reality glasses in 2025, I think that will change culture very, very quickly because what that will mean is that when you're walking down the street, and you're looking around, you will see content and you'll see magical artistic content all around you instead of on your screen. And people will realize like, oh, that's how computing should be. Mm. And, and my view is that when, when Apple does that, let's say in 2025, within five years, you know, 2030, maybe 2031, 2032, I believe it will be very, very rapidly adopted because it, and you can think of it like the iPhone, like the iPhone was launched in 2007. Nobody knew they needed a smartphone in 2007. Everyone was had flip phones, but it, you know, they launched it. It had value. It took off. And as soon as it started taking off, people started feeling like, well, if I don't have a smartphone, I'm missing out on, I'm missing out on capabilities. I'm missing out on content. I'm missing out on information. And so within five years, you pretty much had to buy a smartphone, even though it was 10 times more expensive. Right. Um, and so when, you know, when, Snap and Apple and Meta and, and Microsoft launch augmented reality glasses, it's going to be the same thing. If you don't have them, you're missing out on content. You're missing out on information. You're walking down the street and you're not seeing the amazing things that other people are seeing. And so I believe it will have rapid adoption to the point where augmented reality glasses, I think, in the early 2030s, will replace phones as the primary way we interact with content. And in, 20, you know, in the early 2030s, We'll look back at those movies from, you know, the 2010s when people were walking down the street, staring down at a phone, you know, people with their neck bent, staring down at a phone, walking. And we'll say, like, that's ridiculous. <sighs> like, why are they doing like the information could just be everywhere. And so um, I, I do believe it will happen. I believe it will happen quickly. Uh, the technology is almost there. And again, these companies are working on it and it's not, you know, small startups working on it. It's the biggest companies in the world spending billions because they know this is this is the the future of their industry, especially the future of of uh, mobile phones. All the all the companies know that the future of their industry is augmented reality. Yeah, that's just uh, it's going to impact us all, and it's going to be quick, like you said. And uh, yeah, things that you look at your phone for now, walking down the street. I mean. A restaurant review, right? Maybe there's an overlay when you look at a restaurant, how many stars they got on Yelp or 
and it will be immersive, meaning uh, you, you'll be walking down the street and you will, um, that restaurant could have virtual dishes, you know, on virtual tables that you walk past, you know, oh, wow. kind of like how a, a waiter or waitress might bring you the specials that, you know, a virtual waiter might walk out the front door of the, the restaurant and show you the specials as you walk past and it will look real. Hey, every, every table has a nice view of the skyline. Although you're really just looking at a brick wall, right? <laughs> it, it absolutely possible, and uh, and so there will be, uh, and and there we're getting a little bit into promotional content. I mean, these all these stores and restaurants will be, you know, filling our world with promotional content. Mm. I, you know, there's there's issues there that we could talk about that that concern me, but there'll also be artistic content and magical content, and uh, you know, the the creative things that developers can do with augmented reality throughout your life is, is amazing. Yeah. It's limitless. It's limitless. And, um, on the, on the flip side, the things that, that advertisers can do and large corporations can do and the companies that control the, the metaverse can do are also limitless and, uh, and could become, um, overwhelming in, in, you know, how much access they have to their, to consumers, uh, especially if you're wearing augmented reality glasses, with the way you use a phone today. I mean, people today, from the time they wake up to the time they go to sleep, they have their phone in their possession. And that's how, you know, augmented reality glasses would be. You would, you'd be wearing them all day and, um, and it will give third parties the ability to, to track what you're doing throughout your day and then, uh, hit you with, you know, promotional content throughout the day. And so I'm a big proponent of, uh, of regulation of the metaverse to protect consumers so that we have the magical experiences, but we don't have to worry about um, what the, the companies that control these technologies can do. Yeah. That's why I think the development of this technology is so critical in the way that it's developed, the way the software is developed, um, the privacy implications that need to go into the, the thought process there, because I'm just curious to know, like, in the metaverse or when things become more seamless to the user, how much easier those malicious acts or privacy invasion situations may be. It may be easier for an attacker to take advantage of a user. Um, you know, I can't predict that, but I can see how that could be possible. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, it's, I think it's interesting to think of um, both the legitimate uses that are dangerous and the, you know, the bad actor uses the the um, the uses by uh, an, an illegitimate party, but even just the legitimate uses. When you think of like, I like to compare, you know, the metaverse to social media because people, you know, people are starting to realize you know, over the last few years that social media has, you know, even though it had these utopian visions at the start, it has. There's a lot of really negative, scary things about social media because it gives the platforms these very large amount of power. And then the platforms sell that power to third parties because that's their business model. And so if you think of like, what's the source of the danger of, of social media, their business model is really about tracking and targeting consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the, you know, and they track consumers, uh, in pretty extensively. They track where you click and what you buy and who your friends are. And they use that to profile you over time. And then once they have these profiles, they can then sell access to you to third parties who target you with algorithmically generated 
content and, and or al- algorithmically selected content and and you know it's news feeds it's advertisements it's introductions to other friends and this has created unexpected problems it's it's amplifying people's biases it's uh, persuading people on behalf of sponsors it's you know, perpetuating misinformation disinformation it, it has these damaging impacts okay so now we can take that social media and think let's think about the metaverse. Well, in the metaverse, they're going to also track you and target you. But tracking you doesn't just mean where you click. Tracking you means where you go, what you do, what you look at, how long your gaze lingers on something. If you're walking down the street and you slow down and you look in a store window, they will know that. They'll know how long you, you know, what are you slowing down to look at? What are you, what are you walking past? They'll be able to track your gait, where are you speeding up, where are you slowing down? They'll be able to track your posture. And then from your posture, they can infer your your emotion or your interest level uh very likely in the metaverse they'll track they'll monitor your facial expressions they'll monitor your vocal inflections uh, they'll even monitor your vital signs and pe- when i tell people vital signs they go oh like no one will agree to that people already agree to that with smartwatches oh yeah <laughs> people already agree to that with smartwatches and those same technologies in the smartwatches are already uh, there's already companies working to build them into earbuds and so that ultimately earbuds will will monitor your blood pressure uh your heart rate your respiration rate and and okay like that's interesting and it's valuable for medical applications but there's lots of money in VC going into using all of these things where you go what you do what you look at what your what your blood pressure is to advertise to you to market to you more efficiently so so the first thing about the metaverse is from the uh, especially in augmented reality from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep they will know everything about you and in some sense, they have to know that to be able to build the virtual world around you. But we could regulate. They don't have to store that information. They don't have to be able to uh, to track that information and profile you over time so they know exactly your behaviors as you walk down every street and, and what stores you look at. And we don't have to let them know that. But once they know that, then what are they going to do with that? Well, if they use this current business model of social media, they'll use that to target you with promotional content. But targeting isn't going to be pop-up ads and and you know videos going to your feed. Targeting is going to be immersive. And so they so for example, they'll use virtual product placements. Meaning I walk down the street and I see you know a certain product, uh, I see a certain car parked and I might think, oh like that's uh that's a nice car. I might not realize somebody placed that there specifically for me to see. Or I'm walking down the street and I see people walking the other direction holding shopping bags for a particular store. And I see it again. And again, I think, wow, that, that store is pretty popular. Where It must be around the corner. And I might not realize, like, no, I'm, I'm the only one seeing that. That was put in, that was injected into my world on behalf of a paying sponsor for me. Or I see, mm. uh, and so this idea of virtual products where they're injecting into my world targeted experiences that's promotional content will happen and it will be just as real as everything else in my world. And so I won't be able to distinguish, did I just serendipitously come across these things or did somebody manipulate my world for me to to have that experience? And that will happen. I, I believe it should be regulated, meaning if somebody's putting virtual product placements into my world, it should be required that it looks different, that, it, that, that I can tell the difference between seeing somebody walk down the street uh, using a particular product and know 
that that's just a real another user in the world or it was injected it's into the world on behalf of a sponsor i should i should be required they should require people to to be transparent to require sponsors to be transparent so i can tell the difference now virtual product placements will happen it won't just be for for products it could be for political messaging it could be you know, i can see people walking down the street with a you know wearing a shirt and for a particular candidate or i could see people protesting or or and so this this idea that they can again manipulate my world and i need to be able to know did somebody pay to put that into my world or is that just a natural experience in in my environment and then it will go even further from just virtual products to virtual people there's lots of companies working on photorealistic virtual people that will fill the metaverse, whether it's a fully virtual world or an augmented world, and um, and they will look real. In fact, it was just uh, there was just a study that was released uh, a couple months ago from uh, Lancaster University and and UC Berkeley, where they they t- they they used the latest AI technology to generate artificial human faces, you know, computer generated human faces, and then they did testing on. Uh, hundreds of people to see, you know, can you tell the difference between a computer generated face completely? The people do not exist. They're just completely jet computer generated and real photographs of people. And they found people cannot tell the difference that the state of the technology now is such that people cannot tell the difference. And that was, that was an interesting result. But the crazy result was they also asked people to judge the trustworthiness of these faces. And they found that the, that people judged the computer generated faces more trustworthy than the real faces. Yes. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, there's characteristics that make you want to believe somebody make them look more trustworthy. So as they're developing these algorithms, uh, what's the one site? Um, this person does not exist. Right. I don't know if you've came across that, but that's a prime example right there. They all look trustworthy. And so if you're an advertiser, uh, whether you're a legitimate advertiser or pushing, uh, misinformation, disinformation, if people trust AI-generated faces and AI-generated people, virtual people more than real people, you'll use virtual people. And, and vir- you don't have to pay actors. <laughs> you can use virtual people. And so, yeah. and so virtual people will happen. Uh, and, so, and, and there'll be two different types of uses of virtual people. I was what I would call passive and active. So passive might be, I might be in a virtual world you know, fully virtual with avatars or augmented, augmented world. And, uh, and I might overhear a conversation between two people about, you know, some political issue. And I might think, oh, they're just, those are just real people having a conversation. I might not realize that those are just, those were placed there for my behalf on behalf of a paying advertiser. Mm. Uh, and uh, taking that one step further, we're not that far away from these virtual avatars that look real being uh, being controlled by AI to engage you in prom- promotional conversation. Yeah. And so the ultimate the, the ultimate form of advertising in the metaverse will be promotional conversation, where AI driven agents that look real are engaging you in conversation to persuade you to buy a product, to buy a service. To, b- to buy into a political belief, to buy into a piece of disinformation. They'll engage you in these promotional conversations and they will be, if it's not regulated, they will be armed with a full database of all your behaviors and that have been tracked in the metaverse. 
They'll be armed with tracking your facial expressions and vocal inflections in real time to, to uh, track your emotions. And you know, the technology is very sophisticated already for real-time emotion tracking. So imagine if you're interacting with a, a virtual spokesperson um, that's an AI control, that, that AI agent is tracking your emotions in real time because it has, it's even potentially looking at your blood pressure and heart rate while it's talking to you. Um, and it's adjusting its tactics to persuade you. That is where we're headed unless it's regulated. And people are very aware that AI can, you know, beat the world's best chess player and beat the world's best Go player. How hard do you think it would be for an AI like that, that looks human, that's tracking your blood pressure and your vital signs to persuade you to buy a product you don't need? I think that's easier than beating the world's best chess player uh, or to per- or to persuade you to believe something that's just nonsense or to pers- persuade you to believe something that's not in your best interest. So this combination of, uh, of the metaverse and art- artificial intelligence together makes a very potentially very scary world unless it's regulated, unless the platforms are not allowed to use your vital signs to advertise to you, are not allowed to, to do real-time emotion profiling to advertise to you, to, to manipulate you. Um, you know, those, those types of regulations are, I think, pretty reasonable. I don't think people want their blood pressure to be used by advertisers. And, you know, now is the time to push for those regulations rather than, you know, end up like we did with social media where people waited 10 years too long to even think about regulating social media because we didn't, we didn't realize that how damaging uh, some of these practices would be with the metaverse. We have, you know, we have the benefit of social media as an example that, you know, giving the platform, you know, the platform sit in this position of power where they're watching what people do and injecting information into their world. And that power can distort your world. Uh, and in the metaverse, that power is much, much greater. I mean, what I, I like to tell people, like the whole point of virtual reality and augmented reality is to fool the senses. <laughs> That's what it's for. It's, it's trying to blur the boundaries between what's real and what's not real. That in the hands of a powerful corporation, you know, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Now, let me ask you this. Um, on the flip side, you mentioned virtual avatars being controlled by, by AI. Um, there's also situations where you have virtual avatars being controlled by real people, yes. for instance, in gaming, right? And um, so Meta developed a game called Horizon Worlds. And I don't know if you remember this story, but back in December, a woman in the UK claimed that she was sexually harassed and raped in this metaverse game. So when you think of regulations and governing, do you see that playing out as well, where we're going to see real life penalties enforced for virtual crimes committed? Yeah. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of interesting issues there that are potentially scary. You know, one, you know, the issue of harassment, you know, uh, harassment happens online now uh, but it gets worse when it's immersive. Whenever you know, the more realistic things get, uh, the more that online harassment becomes like real in-person harassment, and um, and we're headed into a place where 
these virtual worlds will ultimately be photorealistic. And the potential harassment is almost as damaging as, as if it really happened. Um, and it's not the same, although it could still inflict, you know, emotional trauma. Right. So it's, I mean, it's not the same, but it will get closer and closer to the same every year. <laughs> so, cause yeah, we're headed in gotcha. the direction where it's, you know, things become more and more real. And even to the point where, you know, physical touch will be in as part of the metaverse as well. It's that's, that's further out because the equipment is, is, is more expensive and there's, there's other issues, but, um, but the, the potential of what happens with, you know, avatars that are controlled by other people. There's this interesting, um, it, one of the big buzzwords in the, in the metaverse that, that a lot of companies are pushing is this idea of, you know, digital twins. And, and you know, a digital twin would be, you know, oh, I can create a, I can create an avatar that looks exactly like me. And, um, and, and so I can have a presence in the metaverse that is photorealistic, but it's completely virtual. And that will happen. Uh, the thing I worry about is what I would call evil twins, uh, where, where an evil twin is, okay, you have, a, you have an avatar that looks exactly like you. What if it's not controlled by you? What if, it, <laughs> what if it, it's, I mean, that's the ultimate form of identity theft. Somebody uh, either uh, hacks into and gains control of your, your photorealistic avatar of you, or they just duplicate it. And now there's, um, they're using that to, to commit fraud. And they're not just emulating what you look like. They're also using voice changing AI to, to emulate your voice. And so, um, deep fake in the metaverse. So it's a real time deep fake controlled by a third party. Uh, and so you could imagine that a coworker, somebody just pretends to be a coworker, looks just like the coworker, sounds just like the coworker, and they're using it as corporate, corporate espionage to get information out of you. Or, uh, and, and so this, I, this, the potential of, uh, you know, of identity theft and, and phishing attacks and, and fraud in an immersive world where the technology is intended to fool the senses, where there's, you know, major corporations working on creating the technology so that they can make a photorealistic version of you, even simulate your voice is dangerous. And, yeah. um, and so it raises not just regulatory concerns, but security concerns. The same amount of effort that will go into regulating, you know, corporations so that, so that what's considered legal is scaled back. We also then have to realize, well, there are parties who don't care what's legal <laughs> and, um, they will use all these techniques, whether it's injecting, you know, fake things into your world. Uh, but that will include, you know, these evil twins that are look just like somebody, you know, but aren't controlled by them. They're controlled by somebody who is who is trying to manipulate you. Mm -hmm. And as this technology develops, I'm sure that technical controls will develop as well to be able to hopefully detect these type of situations. But I also think, you know, awareness is super important too for the public, the consumers that are going to be purchasing these devices, purchasing this software. And just like not everybody's aware of what a phishing attack is, you know, it, it just becomes more important, I think, to stress the dangers of what happens because again, it, it could be seamless at that point, you know? I mean, that it ultimately will be seamless. I mean, that's, you know, 
that's what these companies are spending billions doing. And, and I mean, the amount of money going into metaverse now is, is crazy. I mean, meta spent over $10 billion last year, and that's just the start to make these technologies seamless. And again, there's amazing apps. Like they, like these companies will create amazing applications and magical experiences. And, um, to me, the big thing is, okay, we, we know it has these, you know, people could potentially have great benefit. Let's, you know, let's just make sure that we are at the same time putting just as much thought into, into restricting corporations from, uh, from exploiting consumers with these, with these capabilities and also preventing bad actors from taking control of these capabilities. Uh, because both of those things are just, you know, are going to be just as powerful as the the positive applications oh yeah 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 we just can't hinder the the movement you know the forward movement of what's happening here right you know, just it, we just need to run in parallel with it and make sure that you know the proper safeguards are in place because you don't want to get to a point and then have to worry about that later because we see that far too many times absolutely and you know and, and a lot of people get nervous when you talk about regulation um and i think in this case you know it's there's not really a need to to regulate the the content creators and the artists and the the people who are coming up. It's because it's the the biggest issue is to look at what are the parties that are put in a position of extreme power. Yes, right. And if you think about like if you're if you're a metaverse platform provider, what you really are is you have you you're basically tracking. You could be tracking a billion people. Like where they are, what they're doing, what they're looking at, what direction their gaze is looking. You're tracking. You could I mean you have this God's eye view of a, of a whole world. That's a powerful position to be in, and you have the ability to just manipulate that world at will. You can have something appear, you know, right before them. And 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 so I think educating the public that the power that the platforms will have make social media look kind of quaint, right? Like, like social, like platform providers and social media have a lot of power, but, but they're not, you know, basically looking down on a, on a whole world of people and knowing exactly what they're doing. And so yeah. it's the, the power is extreme, which means, you know, thoughtful regulation makes sense. It's, you know, the goal is not to suppress the industry. The goal is to, to allow these magical things to happen. But, um, but allow consumers to feel feel like they're not being exploited by the companies that control the metaverse and also are not at danger of you know fraudsters who are you know basically popping into the metaverse and you know look like they're good friend and, and they aren't <laughs> yeah exactly so I, I would I do want to shift over to uh, unanimous AI for a moment um, uh -huh, and sure. uh, I'd like you to explain swarm technology to me is this a technology that you developed internally? Uh, yes. So, uh, so my current company is called Unanimous AI, and, um, and we're an artificial intelligence company, but we, we take a really different approach to AI. So most AI companies, uh, you know, work on, you know, processing huge amounts of data so that they can essentially replace people from certain tasks. Sometimes they're replacing people from repetitive tasks, sometimes replacing people from decision-making tasks. Uh, but there's a big push in the AI world to say, oh, we can build AI that take people out of the loop. Uh, unanimous AI, our, our approach is different. Our approach is to say, well, 
we think people are smart. <laughs> we think people have uh, amazing capabilities. Can we use AI to make people smarter, to, make, to, to allow people to make better decisions? And, and especially we say, can we allow groups of people to make better decisions? And so we looked, you know, and like a lot of technologies, we look to nature for inspiration. We say, well, you know, nature has, you know, spent millions and hundreds of millions of years um, evolving different techniques for, for, uh, for different species. And there are some species that function in large groups, schools of fish, flocks of birds, swarms of bees. And, um, and nature has developed something called swarm intelligence. And so swarm intelligence is this biologically studied uh, process where a, a group, when they work together as a system, as a, as a tightly controlled system, can become significantly smarter than the individuals who make up the system. And so think of a school of fish. A school of fish might have thousands of individuals. Each of those individuals has a slightly different view of the world. They're, they have uh, slightly different his, you know, experiences, even slightly different personality. And, and they move together as a system. They're actually detecting vibrations in the water between fish to make decisions. And so if you look at a school of fish, they move around through the ocean as a biologist would call them a superorganism. They, 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 they move as uh, almost like a single intelligence. And so a school of, there's, the thing about a school of fish is there's no leader. There's no, there's no one's in charge. And yet this school of fish can navigate the whole ocean, navigate their lives, you know, be a successful species that's been around for hundreds of millions of years, much longer than humans. And they're smarter than the individuals. Uh, swarms of bees do the same thing. Swarms of bees uh, make remarkable decisions in large groups that the individuals could never do. Flocks of birds do it. And so unanimous AI, we said, well, look, if flocks of birds and schools of fish and swarms of bees can get smarter by working together in systems as a, a swarm, why can't humans do it? And so we developed a technology called Swarm AI that connects groups of people together over the Internet and allows them to, to make decisions together in groups. And it, um, it's very visual. It, 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 in, in some, you know, some people say it almost looks like a Ouija board. We have a group of people like all moving together to make a decision. Like, but imagine a Ouija board that has you know, a thousand people all, all moving the puck together. Um, and, and so we developed that. It uses AI to combine everybody's insights. And we figured, you know, it works for nature, it should work for people. And when we started testing it, it works. It allows, it allows us to harness the intelligence of groups so that they can make significantly more accurate predictions and forecasts and estimations and, uh, and significantly better decisions. Basically, anytime you have a group of people who have some you know, distribution of knowledge, if they come together as a swarm, uh, in our software is actually called Swarm, they log in, they make a decision together, um, we can make them function as a, as a super intelligence. Very interesting. And this could help minimize the threat of data poisoning or, you know, um, synthetic data injection on a mass scale, because otherwise your projected outcome or your trained algorithm is just completely altered. It, when you bring up a really interesting point, which is about, which is really about AI in general. So most AI systems, uh, I would say, you know, the vast majority, um, do create intelligence by processing big data sets. So they take a big data set and they're finding patterns in the data and they use those data, those patterns in the data to make forecasts. Okay. And, and it works, but 
it's only as good as the data. So, so if you have bad data or corrupt, corrupted data or old data, then it doesn't work. Right. And so what we do at Unanimous AI is actually we don't process any big sets of data like that. We target what we would call the human database, meaning if I pull, if I connect a hundred people, each one of those people has a brain filled with information. It has a brain filled with knowledge and wisdom and insight and intuition. The people are continuously updating the information. I mean, that's what we are. We're information collecting machines. And so, like, for example, every year we, we forecast the Oscars as a swarm. We do that. So we, we take on a, a lot of challenges from journalists because they're always saying like, oh, yeah, you can amplify intelligence. Do this. Predict the Oscars. And so we, we, it was actually Newsweek was the first to ask us to do the Oscars that way. We did it for them for a number of years. And, um, and so we pulled together, uh, 50 people. Those 50 people are not experts. They're just movie fans, but they, but they live in the world. They, they've seen, uh, they've seen some movies. They've listened to the radio. They've watched TV. They've read something online. They have this distribution of information and knowledge about the movies and about the Oscars. We bring them together and we have them predict as a swarm. And then we compare to professional forecasters, you know, movie critics. And, um, and every year we do this, 50 regular movie fans, uh, end up, uh, predicting the Oscars with like 90% accurate accuracy, 95% accuracy, maybe as low as 87% accuracy. But every year they, they outperform, uh, the New York times, the LA times, variety magazine, vanity fair, uh, which are, you know, professional experts. And, and, uh, and the point is that people are smart. People have good information in their heads and we can connect them together and create this super intelligence and their information is up to date. And you can compare that to traditional AI where you need this big database of historical data and that historical data is continuously getting old. And so the data you might have about last year's Oscars aren't really going to help you predict this year's Oscars because it's different movies. But we see the same thing even in the business world. You know, we have a lot of customers who who use our swarm technology for doing sales forecasting, uh, market forecasting, message testing. But imagine sales forecasting. If you're trying to uh, predict the sales of a product this holiday season and you use data from last year's holiday season, what you're really doing is you're predicting how well your product would have done last year. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But if you connect together groups of people who who are aware of the today's economic conditions and the sentiment of their world. And um, then we can make much more accurate, you know, product forecast or political forecast. We do the same thing with political forecasting. And again, people have vast amounts of knowledge and wisdom and intuition that's up to date and they have a better sense uh, of, of how to, of how a, a political campaign will play out than people using big databases of historical data because the data gets old so fast. I need to ask you about sports forecasting though because uh, Kentucky Derby is tomorrow. And at one point, uh, Swarm Technology predicted the superfecta of the, I believe it was a 2016 Kentucky Derby. And uh, for those that aren't into horse racing, that's predicting the first four finishers, which happened to be at the time 540 to one odds. So if you don't mind, could you talk to me about that a little bit and how that came to be? 
Sure. So, uh, like I said, we we take on challenges from journalists, and uh, it was a journalist from CBS Interactive who came to us. You know, this was a few years back, and said, "You know, I've seen you predict the Oscars. I've seen you predict the Grammys. Predict the Kentucky Derby." I said, "Okay, we can do that." I said, "Well, no, predict all four horses, first four horses in order." Okay, <laughs> said, so that was a challenge to you. That was a challenge. It was predict the first four horses in order. We said, "Okay." Uh, we, and we didn't know anything about horse racing. You know, our technology has never seen horse racing. Or what our technology can do is take a group of people and connect them together and make a super intelligence. And so we, we, uh, we found 20 horse racing enthusiasts just online. They're not experts, not professionals, just enthusiasts. We had them come into our software called Swarm. And we said, okay, let's predict, uh, let's predict the Kentucky Derby. And so they predicted which, which horse would come in first, second, third, fourth. And we gave the, res- we gave the predictions to the journalist. Uh, we didn't know she was going to do this, but she actually went to the Kentucky Derby and she placed a bet on the Superfecta and she tweeted out her ticket, uh, which suddenly put a lot of pressure on us. Like, okay. Um, and of course she and, tagged you, right? Oh, and she, oh, she tagged you. So, so <laughs> it was, um, and it was, you know, CBS interactive. So it got, you know, it got attention. Um, and it, I, I placed a bet as well. I placed a $20 bet. Um, a lot of her readers placed bets. And the horses came in first, second, third, fourth. And, and so anyone who placed a $20 bet, like I did, uh, won $11,000. <laughs> so I, I won $11,000 on that bet. One of her readers wrote into her and told her that they won $50,000 on that bet. And so it was, uh, it was an amazing example. But what was even more amazing about that is that you know, we had all the data. We went back and we looked at, okay, of these 20 people who came together in a swarm, you know, how many of them would have predicted the four horses right on their own? None of them. And we said, well, if they had just taken a vote, what would they, if they have just taken a vote, they would have gotten the winner right, but the, the other three wrong. And so a swarm is really very, it's not a vote. It's, it's a system. So it's, so, you know, it's a system, meaning, you know, people start pulling for different horses and, and it's like a multi-directional tug of war. Like imagine it, like what looks like a school of fish making a decision they're pulling and pushing on each other until they can find the one solution that they can best agree upon. And it's, uh, it's usually the best solution based on the information that everybody has. And the thing is like, when you do a one-off event like that, it's, uh, which is, which is fun. We do a lot of them like the Oscars. Um, it's hard to do, you know, to prove that it's statistically viable. And so we do, we, we, uh, we do rigorous studies with, usually with universities as partners to do large amounts of data. And so, for example, um, we do, we, we still do sports forecasting. We're not forecasting, uh, the Kentucky Derby this year because we're currently forecasting the, the entire, uh, NBA basketball season and, and major league baseball season. So we're predicting, uh, you know, dozens of, of uh, basketball and baseball games and, and also soccer games in the English Premier League. And we track performance over time. And so the last season that just finished for us was we did the, uh, the NFL season. We did uh, the, every, we predicted every single game of the NFL season against the spread, which, and football is like the hardest sport really to gamble against, against the spread because there's so much money and the, and the, um, the, the handicappers are really, really good. And so if you're a, a Typical gambler uh, betting on football against the spread, your performance is going to be 50%. You'll get half your bets right. And then you'll lose 3% every time. And you'll, you'll, uh, over the course of the season, you'll lose all your money. That's what, will, that's what will happen for most people. If you're a professional gambler, if you can get 54% against the spread, 50, 54% accuracy in your bets against the spread, 
then you're making money and you're a professional gambler. If you're like the top of the top, you might get to 55% accurate. We use this group of 20 regular sports fans. We were 56% accurate against the spread uh, for the entire NFL season. And we see that for season after season. And, and the point is that people are smart. Like regular people are smart. Sports fans, uh, if, if we can connect them together and combine their insights and their knowledge and their wisdom, we can build a super intelligence uh, that can you know, predict sports, that can predict financial markets. Uh, we have uh, we have customers who are hedge funds that uh, that bring their analysts together and and predict um, you know predict particular uh, particular equities. Um, we even did a, a big research project uh, a couple of years ago with Stanford Medical School, where we had where they wanted to see can they can they amplify the intelligence of doctors. And so they had groups of radiologists diagnose chest X-rays as a swarm, and uh, and it was small groups. It was just uh, four or five doctors connected together, and they either diagnosed the chest X-rays on their own, diagnosed by taking a vote, or diagnosed as a swarm. And when they worked together as a swarm, they reduced their diagnostic errors by thirty three percent. Wow. 33% fewer errors when they work together as a swarm. And so, um, so ultimately, people are smart. When you connect groups of people together with, with AI, you can make them smarter. And we're not taking people out of the loop. We're keeping, we're keeping people into the process, which means we're keeping their values and morals and sensibilities in the process. We're not replacing human decisions with software. We're amplifying human decisions with software. Love it. So here at Barcode, we have an AI robot named Boozebot. Okay. And um, he takes inventory of all the drinks that our patrons order and then calculates what someone will order at any given time. Okay. Hypothetically, uh, of course. Is this possible? Yes. And especially when we live in this uh, augmented world where people are wearing AR, AR glasses and, and you know where they've been and what, what they've done and um, an AI would be able to predict with high accuracy what drink you would order. And, and you might not even know what cues they're, it's picking up on. It might, you know, it might, especially if it was really tracking all of your behaviors, it, it might be looking at, you know, the speed of your gait as you're walking from the parking lot. Like when you're, you know, when you walk in, you know, with a brisk gait, they, it knows you're, you know, you're in a certain mood and you're going to order X. And if you walk in sluggish and, uh, it knows you're going to order Y and, uh, or it might be a combination of your gait and your facial expressions. It might. Uh, and so the point is that um, if a system can profile people by tracking where they are, what they're doing, their gait, facial uh, vital signs, it could accurately predict a lot about them. And, uh, and people might appreciate, uh, you know, uh, a, a virtual bartender that's, you know, that's very insightful but there's just as many uses that people would not appreciate being able to be being predicted. Absolutely. Um, so you are in San Luis Obispo, California. Yeah. Okay. So that's like the central coast region. Yes, it, it is. So if I find myself out in that area, um, uh-huh. where would you direct me to for a good drink? Do you guys have any uh, unique bars in that area or is that more wine country there? Uh, it's definitely wine country, but there's also uh, breweries. Um, but uh, it's definitely wine country. So uh, I mean, there are uh, there are beautiful 
really beautiful vineyards all around. And so I would, uh, I, I would, there's an area called Edna Valley that uh, I would uh, direct you towards with some really, uh, really pretty uh, vineyards. There's also uh, Avila Beach area has very pretty vineyards. Um, what most people would be looking for that's unique in this area would be the, the, uh, the wineries and vineyards and um, it's, it's wine country. All right. So I just heard last call here. Do you have time for one more? Sure. Awesome. So if you decided to open a cybersecurity or an AI themed bar, yep. uh, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Ah, great question. Um, I'm not sure what the name of the bar would be, but I think a good name for a drink would be uh, the evil twin. There you go. Uh, which on a theme of cybersecurity, uh, I do think that's, that will become uh, the, the future of um, identity theft. <laughs> it is going to be the future of identity theft. And I'm thinking that, you know, when you order that drink, you basically get two of the same drink. Yeah, maybe that's, there you go. It's, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Lewis, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, before you go, could you let us know where we can all find you online? Sure. Uh, so, um, our the company's unanimous AI. And so if you want to find out about our sports forecasting or about, uh, how to amplify the intelligence of groups, just go to unanimous.ai. Uh, you can find uh, me there as well. Uh, if anyone wants to reach out to me, they could email me at lewis at unanimous.ai. And, uh, I'm also uh, on LinkedIn at, uh, just Lewis Rosenberg at LinkedIn. So, uh, Right. You can find me there as well. And everybody say hi if they run into you in the metaverse at some point. That's right. And uh, yeah, man, I'm betting on the Derby this year. Um, I'm betting on a horse called Cyberknife. I like the name, but uh, I'm also <laughs> I'm also betting on on you and you know the future of unanimous AI. I really uh, believe that you're going to continue just trailblazing and innovating new ways to apply AI in, into the world. And, um, you know, I commend your effort in, in securing us and doing it securely. So, um, again, appreciate your time. You take care. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It was fun. Barco patrons. If you like this episode and would like to support the podcast, rate us on Apple podcast and visit our Patreon site, patreon.com slash barcode podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, check out the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.